Welcome to the HTH Church Podcast. We are a church in the heart of Hastings whose desire is to build communities of people who are so passionate about being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and joining in with what Jesus is doing, that lives, families, and communities are changed and transformed one at a time. On this podcast, you can keep up to date with the latest talks from our Sunday services, as well as additional bonus episodes, which include conversations, interviews, devotions, and much more. If you'd like to find out more about the church, you can visit our website, hthchurch.org. Otherwise, we hope you enjoy this episode. But today, what I think uh, God really wants to speak about, hopefully through me, is healing and the life of faith. So I wanted to start just with a bit of a trigger warning. Um, Healing is a potentially kind of contentious issue, a deeply personal and often painful issue issue for many people that requires quite a careful approach. So hopefully I'm, I'm quite careful and sensitive about this this morning, but I hope today what we'll come away with uh, after this morning is a greater sense of what healing is, that it's not just an event that happens, but it's a process of being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Part of our vision here is about being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and joining in with what Jesus is doing. Healing kind of touches on all of those things. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. And it seems quite apt uh, that I should be talking about healing when I think quite a few people are feeling a bit rotten this week, especially in our team, and I've been feeling, feeling it this week. Thankfully, I think I've turned a corner now, but I do feel a little bit bunged up, so sorry if I sound a bit nasal. It's not very nice to listen to. Uh, when you're all nasally. I think, Simon, are you a bit nasal too? You sound a bit bunged up and all. Anyway, so we'll have an opportunity later on to really um, pray for, for these things. Um, so the story so far in Luke is that Jesus is born, that's Christmas, that's, that's been and gone, and apart from one brief episode as a 12-year-old when he's found in the temple, uh, Luke sees there's nothing worthy of note about Jesus' upbringing. There's nothing to mention about it. Jesus just grows up in obscurity. We have this little bit as a 12-year-old, exceptional birth, ordinary life, and then he hits 30, and that's when his ministry begins. He reappears out of this obscure uh, season of three decades and is baptized by his cousin John in the River Jordan and then goes out into the wilderness. The Spirit drives him out into the wilderness where, he is, uh, where Simon found him a couple of weeks ago, where um, he, is, he has to resist the devil's temptations, which he does, and then he returns again out of the dusty, obscure, again, always coming out of obscurity, out of the wilderness, and there... Uh, in the power of the Spirit again. This is where the rubber really hits the road when he comes back out of the wilderness. And the first place that he goes to is Nazareth, his hometown, uh, in the synagogue where Sarah found him last week with the words of the prophet Isaiah on his tongue. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And at first, his teaching pleases the people and they accept it. They love it, in fact. It sounds like Jesus is talking about revival and the power of God to heal their oppression and their strife and all these wonderful things. They just don't want Jesus to say any more. But Jesus always has a problem of not knowing when to shut up. 
And so he carries on. He doesn't keep his mouth shut. And he touches a nerve, a really deep wound in this people group, when he suggests that in its application, this sermon that he's just preached from Isaiah includes those despicable pagan Gentiles like you and me out there as much as them. And they aren't ready to deal with that kind of radical inclusivity just yet. And it's understandable. After all, their own healing is not yet complete. They're still suffering at the hands of empire. And Jesus is suggesting that he is going to heal them too. So, forgetting their former standing ovation for his sermon, they turn on him. They pick him up and they try to hurl him off a cliff. But miraculously, somehow he departs unscathed and makes his way down to the city of Capernaum, which is where we find him this morning. Once again, teaching on the Sabbath, always on the Sabbath, in the synagogue. And it says, They too were astounded at his teaching because he spoke with authority. In the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Leave us alone. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Then the demon, throwing the man down before them, came out of him without doing him any harm. They were all astounded and kept saying to one another, What kind of word is this, that with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out? And news about him began to reach every place in the region. So Jesus' ministry has just begun, and this is the first of one of his signs of his power throughout Luke's gospel. Jesus immediately sets about putting into effect the manifesto he's just preached in Nazareth, in Capernaum. In Nazareth, amongst his own, amongst those who knew him best, knew him personally and his family personally, they say, is not this Joseph's boy? Those who watched him grow up, who saw him at work all those 30 obscure years that we know nothing about, who saw him learning Torah with the other children, those who saw him playing in the dusty streets, they not only reject him, but they try to murder him because they have failed to recognize Jesus' true identity. And by some strange irony then, the first ones who do recognize Jesus's identity at the beginning of his ministry are not those people that knew him best, but the demons, the unclean parasitic spirits leeching off this poor unfortunate man in the synagogue who's come to probably disrupt things. I know who you are, the Holy One of God, they say. It's not those that know him best, nor the faithful, who are the first to recognize the lordship of Jesus. It is the enemy who trembles with fear at his approach that acknowledges who this preacher from Nazareth truly is. That's really significant. That says something about us as his faithful. So news about him begins to spread. And Luke is somewhat ambiguous about whether or not this news was received as good or bad. For some, it obviously is good because shortly after, uh, crowds and upon crowds of people come to Jesus. Those who couldn't afford to see a doctor would come and see Jesus, this healer who's doing these miraculous things, and they come and seek him out to be healed. But for others, they question the authority of Jesus. 
How is he performing these signs and wonders? How is he doing these healings? And this is the very question on the lips of the scribes and the elders later on in chapters 11 and 20. Surely the one whom even the demons obey is from Beelzebul, they question. Heedless of these concerns, Jesus moves from the synagogue then to Simon's house, where Simon's mother-in-law is in bed with a fever, and she's sick, and they say, Lord, will you heal her? After which we read that all, um, and he does heal her. After which we read that all those uh, caring for any who were sick with various kinds of diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on each of them and cured them. Moreover, again, demons also came out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Messiah. Again, the demons recognize his true identity before anyone else. To everyone else, he's just a, he's a good guy, he's a healer, that we like what he's doing. But we don't quite recognize that this is God. The one standing before you saying all these things is God. But do you notice what is absent from these stories? These first two bits of Jesus' ministry. There is no mention at all of the people's faith in Jesus. Faith makes no appearance here. I was chatting with um, a friend of mine who some of you will know, Larry there, the wonderful Larry. It's a, it's a blessing and a privilege to know her. And she, she, um, I asked if I could share this story that she told me. Um, and she said yes, thankfully, because it's a great story. She told me that some years ago, uh, when she had experienced probably the most devastating loss that any parent can experience, the loss of her son, Pete. The ensuing months and years after that loss were hell for Larry. And her faith in God's ability to heal her was consumed by grief. And any sense of the presence of Jesus that she had previously felt had all but dissipated in light of that grief. And in a last-ditch attempt... At fighting off the throes of grief, Larry went to a convent of all places. That, was that the place where anyone else would immediately go to when they think about these things? A convent. Where the abbess, the head nun, Sister Angela, having heard her story already, offered to pray for her. And Larry said to Sister Angela, okay, but um, I must warn you, I don't expect much to happen. I'm afraid I don't have any faith to be healed. I don't have any faith to be healed. To which the nun, Sister Angela, someone whose own faith had led them to take radical vows of obedience to Jesus, simply responded, well, what's faith got to do with it anyway? What's faith got to do with it anyway? And so they prayed. That evening they prayed. And nothing happened. And the following day was Easter Sunday. And when Sister Angela at the service on Easter Sunday came to greet Larry with the peace, which is a kind of Anglican thing that we don't do so much here, peace be with you, go around and say it and shake hands. As soon as Sister Angela came and said that to Larry, she immediately began to feel the burden of grief ease in the renewed and deepened sense of the presence of Jesus. Larry describes it as like a deep movement within her. The process of healing was begun in spite of her lack of faith. And this is one of the things that sets Luke's gospel apart from some of the others. In pretty much all the instances of healing in Luke's gospel, 
Luke makes no mention of the person's faith. That is really significant. Because part of the problem is that we think of faith as something that we choose. We think of it as this individualized thing that is personal to us. It is my faith, and I must strive to sustain it. But faith doesn't depend on human willpower. If it did, I don't think any of us would have faith. That's wrong. Because faith, as Paul tells us, is a gift from God. It's given to us. Faith is not then something that you choose, but it's something that has chosen you. Before I became a Christian, or kind of reconverted to Christianity, I was doing my hardest to run away from faith as much as I possibly could, which was futile because you can't outrun God. Faith is not your possession. It's Jesus's. It belongs to him. It is his faithfulness that each of us has been incorporated into. We've been enfolded into his faith, and it is his irrevocable gift to you. So I wonder how many of you will have heard something to the effect of, oh, you haven't been healed. Oh, well, it must be, obviously, you don't have enough faith. That's why I hand go up there. Or you haven't prayed hard enough. Or perhaps uh, you should try fasting and see if God will heal you then. You've got to get the formula right, and then maybe he'll heal you. Or by taking medication or seeing the doctor, you lack the faith that God will heal you. Or God won't heal you unless you believe, unless you have faith that he will. If you're here today and you or someone you know has heard words to that effect, I can just disregard them as toxic excrement that can be put to one side because they have no place in God's economy. Because in those instances, the gift of faith has been disfigured into a precondition of God's will to heal us. A condition that we have to meet in order for God to heal us, which is really, really problematic. It's akin to putting God behind a paywall of faith. Or the equivalent of saying, if you just cash in the right amount or the right kind of faith, then God will heal you. And it's more problematic because it pins the blame of the suffering on the sufferer. It is your fault that you have not been healed. But look, right at the outset of his ministry, Jesus does not wait for the man with demons to have faith to heal him. He just heals him. Jesus does not try to discern the integrity of Simon's mother-in-law's faith at their request. He simply heals her. It's something like 20 times that Luke mentions Jesus healing people, sometimes individuals, sometimes group, throughout the gospel. So that's in almost every single chapter. There's 24 chapters he mentions 20 times Jesus healing either individuals or groups of people. And every time he makes next to no mention of the person being healed, he makes next to no mention of their faith. He might talk about it after he's healed them. But it's not a precondition. In fact, one of the people that comes to Jesus and is healed by him is someone that came to him in the hopes of arresting him. This is someone who willfully disbelieves Jesus. He had his ear cut off, and Jesus restores his ear. This person doesn't just lack faith. They have anti-faith. As the theologian and preacher Chris E.W. Green put it, I love this quote, faith 
does not move God to act in ways God is not already moving. Your faith, however strong it is, does not make God a better God than he would have been without your faith. Your faith does not move God to an act that God would have avoided if you hadn't talked him into it. God's not waiting for us to talk him into healing us. Faith doesn't change God. God is not operating at times at full potential and other times just taking it easy. God's never at the mercy of his emotions like we are. We might want to withhold certain things because we don't like people. But God's not like that. This is what theologians describe as God's pure act. That God has no other way of being what God already is. God is always being good. And therefore, God's being is always good. And that means that God, God's will is always to heal. But healing, as Jesus shows us time and time again, I think, is not just an event. It's a process. It's a process that can start miraculously for sure, and we should hope and pray and expect that it does. And that is wonderful, and we will absolutely pray for that shortly. But healing doesn't end with the miracle. It starts there. Because healing is a process of being transfigured into the likeness of Jesus. Healing is the process of what Christians call sanctification, of being made holy, being made like Jesus. And as Jesus shows us in his own body on the cross, what that looks like, that wellness or that health doesn't necessarily look like how we might expect it to, a man suffering on a cross. But to be truly healthy is to look like him. And so the one occasion where Jesus does mention faith, however, it is not the faith of the person being healed. It's the faith of his friends. This comes just after in chapter 5, and the paralyzed man who's lowered through the roof. Like most of us will know that story. Jesus is teaching in someone's house. The crowds are pressing in. No one can get in. So some friends come with a paralyzed man, and they want this man to be healed. And they climb to the top of the house, break a hole through the roof, and lower him down in order to be healed by Jesus. Again, Jesus doesn't question the man's faith at all. He doesn't ask him. But he says he recognizes the faith of this man's friends. And that is also really significant. Because Jesus is making a point here about the fact that healing is not so much an individual process, but a communal one. It's something that happens to communities, not individuals. You cannot do it on your own. Healings like the one we, we read about in, in Luke's gospel act like a judgment of God on a community that has failed to look after the poor and the sick. When Jesus heals someone, He's making a statement about that community. Jesus is never just healing an individual. He's always healing a community. There's a saying, I'm trying to remember the saying now. There's a saying that goes, Jesus is always taking a nobody, making them a somebody in front of everybody without asking anybody. Have you heard that before? Okay, I'll say it again. Jesus is always in the habit of taking a nobody, making them somebody in front of everybody without asking anybody. He brings people into the middle of the community and says, look, this is what you should be all about. This is what I'm all about. My five-year-old son, Jesse, is autistic. 
And I'd be lying if I said that doesn't come with challenges. It really does. But I firmly believe uh, that for all the challenges, there are so many wonderful, wonderful things that outweigh them completely. I firmly believe that that is how God has intended him to be. God made him that way, and it's wonderful, and I celebrate it. And on occasion, very, very well-meaning people who I love have offered to pray for him, essentially praying that he would no longer be autistic, that he would cease to be autistic. They're praying to change him. He's the problem. He's the one that needs healing, not us. Not only does that belie a kind of complete misunderstanding, I think, of autism and disability in general, as a kind of pathogen, something that needs to be eradicated. But also this totally, again, individuated view of people. We are not these individual blobs existing in isolation from each other. I am who I am because of you. You make me who I am, and I make you who you are. Your family make you who you are. Your friends make you who you are. Even the stranger that you walk past on the street is in some way making you who you are. People are people because of the people around them. You cannot exist in isolation. So when I imagine uh, heaven, it's a fun little exercise to do. What do you imagine heaven to be like? Um, I imagine a lot of food. I quite like food. Um, When I imagine heaven, I don't imagine people living without disabilities. I imagine people living without pain, yes, But I imagine people living in an environment and a community where they are enfolded, completely, fully enfolded in the love of God and accepted and cared for and nurtured and where they themselves can contribute something meaningful to that community without being seen as somehow deficient. And it's a beautiful picture where we just fully rely on each other as we're enfolded in God's love. It is never individuals that need healing. It's always communities It always happens to a community. And what you see throughout the Gospels is that Jesus has this tendency of, like I said, he picks out the rejects, the unclean ones, the marginalized ones, the broken ones, the poor ones, and the afflicted ones. And he makes them the focus of the community. Gather around them. Shape this community around them. And it happens time and time and time again. If you want a bit of homework to do, just go and read through Luke's gospel and look at all the instances where he heals someone and where he makes that person in front of everyone the focus of what is going on. It's not about him. It's about this person. Look at what you're doing. So let's recap. Firstly, even the ones who knew Jesus are slow to recognize who he is. The faithful ones. You and I are often slow to recognize, sometimes slower than even the demons, to recognize just who Jesus is, just how radical Jesus is, just how loving Jesus is. So we shouldn't confuse knowing Jesus with having a monopoly on Jesus. He's not ours to own. We are his possession. He owns us. You did not choose your faith. It chose you. Secondly, This means that Jesus is free to do and heal whoever he pleases, whenever he pleases, however he pleases, even your enemies, even the people who lack faith, seemingly. Thirdly, faith is not a precondition for healing. You don't need to believe in it it in order for it to happen to you. So if you're here today and you are full of faith for that, 
or you doubt it and you lack it entirely, neither of you is in any better position to receive his healing touch. You both can. Thirdly, healing is not an event. It's a process. A process of being transfigured into the likeness of Jesus. If God graces you with a miraculous physical or emotional or psychological healing, then we will absolutely celebrate that. But also recognize that that's just the start of the process. It doesn't end there. And also recognize, fourthly, it's not an individual process. This is something that is happening to all of us. It's a communal, corporate process. If Jesus decides to miraculously heal someone you know or love, he's making a statement about that community. None of us can be transfigured into the likeness of Jesus without each other. We need each other. And that's the way that Jesus intends it to be. Thanks for tuning in to the HTH Church Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with someone you think would appreciate it? And be sure to subscribe to our channel to get notified when new episodes are published. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you have a great day.